I remember hearing uh, an author that uh, talked about, I was listening to a radio interview, talked about, quote, the blessing of sameness. The blessing of sameness. And she talked about all that she was grateful for that had remained the same in her life. Things like living in the same house for 35 years. Um, good old friends that she'd had for decades. Um, her health, which had been substantially the same. All the, the little things that remained steady. And I got to thinking about that. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's easy for me to lose perspective. I kind of touched on this during our announcements a moment ago. But, uh, you know, we, we, we often elevate certain things to a, a category of big things that we worry about. Uh, and in the process, we, we forget about all the little things that we should be grateful for. So it's kind of like turning things on its end. We, we need to recognize that the big things in life, things like world crises, the election, all the chaos that's going, all these things that are important, but yet in God's eyes, they're all little things. There are no big things in God's eyes, you know. God never looks down and says, boy, I don't know how I'm going to handle this one. Well, I'm going to really have to work hard at this one. He's God. They're all things that he can handle. Um, you know, we really shouldn't worry about anything because God's got it all. And yet, we've we got to train ourselves not to overplay the big things, as we call them, and at the same time, not to ignore the little things. I can't remember if I've mentioned this before, but I had a, a uh, professor that worked for me when I was at, in academics, and such a sweet, dear man of God, African-American, played the saxophone. Jeff, you would have loved him. He could just, oh. He just, we would have him play at every event, whether it was a fundraising event, our commencement, our, you know, whatever the event was, he would play. But one of the things I loved most about Marion was his name, was the way he prayed. And when he prayed, he would just pray. He would start out by thanking God. Thank you for my feet that I used to walk in here today. And thank you for my eyes that I used to see my friends. And thank you for my lungs that I used to breathe with. And my hands that I play this saxophone with. And, 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 it, and I never forget that. It just left a profound uh, imprint on me to think about the little things. The little things. And so as I've been, like you, dealing with all that's going on in the world and on top of just sort of geopolitical events, there's also just the everyday stresses of life, right? Like I mentioned, you know, you got car trouble and travels and issues and health issues and you name it, work and finances are a huge deal right now for a lot of people because, you know, businesses are shutting down and people in retail are really, uh, really struggling. And so uh, I think we need, as we gear up this week for Thanksgiving, we need to just spend a few moments this morning remembering some of the little things to be thankful for. And to introduce this topic before we get to our text, I want to show you a short humorous video, about two minutes, that really cracks me up because it is convicting, but yet funny at the same time. So let's watch this together. Oh, oh, that's 
Seriously? Grateful heart. things I love about Jewish history is the way the Jews passed down testimonies of God's faithfulness through oral tradition. You know, we sort of take that for granted today because we've got our smartphones with the Bibles on it. I was able to look up a verse that came to my mind just a minute ago during announcements. And, you know, we, we don't really do much oral uh, tradition, but the Jews were very intentional about memorizing songs and sayings that they used to teach their children and grandchildren about their past. Specifically, they would pass down the many ways in which God had protected and provided for his people generation after generation. Not only was this used as a way to teach the younger members of society, but it also served as a motivating reminder for everyone, regardless of their age, in good times and bad. At the Jewish feasts and festivals, they would recite from memory or sing various stories as a reminder of God's everyday hand of blessing in their, in their life. Uh, even before Israel became a nation, this was common practice. You may remember the end of Genesis, uh, how the Bible tells us, you know, Jacob brought up his great-grandchildren and his grandchildren on his knee. Well, what was he doing? He was telling them stories and reciting about how Yahweh, the one true God, was so faithful. So if you'll turn with me to Psalm 136, I want to look at one of these sort of songs and where Israel recites all of the things that they have uh, to be faithful for. Uh, this is an anonymous psalm written about a thousand years or so before Christ, and it's part of a famous collection of Jewish hymns called the Hallel. The Hallel. Hallel is a Hebrew command that simply means praise. These uh, Hallel psalms were sung at the three yearly feasts that all the males had to attend, the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And uh, they used these psalms on other holy days as well, but this was the, the kind of the focus. And, and at Passover, it was customary to sing, for example, Psalms 113 and 114 before the meal, and then Psalms 115 to 118 after 
the meal, which celebrated the Exodus. So the whole package, the Hallel Psalms in our English Bibles, our version of Psalms, were Psalms 113 to 118, and then tacked on to the end what we call 136, Psalm 136, which we're looking at this morning. And Psalm 136 was known as the Great Hallel, the Great Praise Song. Uh, and it's unique because it repeats the same phrase 26 times, for His mercy endures forever. So this uh, song is made up of 26 couplets and five stanzas. You know, in Hebrew there were no verse numbers like we have in our Bibles today, in the Hebrew Bible, but it was written as a form of Hebrew poetry. So you had, much like English poetry, these couplets, two lines, and each one of those couplets became a verse in our English Bible, so 26 verses, if you will. But there were also stanzas taken as a whole. And we're going to look at each of the five stanzas as it kind of reminds us of something about our God. But I want to point out a couple of things here about this repeated phrase. First of all, you know, a lot of times I'll hear people say, you know, I don't like such and such a modern course because it repeats things so much. You know, it's the old 7-11 course. It repeats the same seven words 11 times. And whenever I hear that, I'm thinking, oh, so it's very biblical, huh? See, I don't have a problem with repetition because the Bible doesn't have a problem with repetition. In fact, repetition is God's way. You know how many, read Psalm 150 sometime and see how many times it says, praise ye the Lord. Repetition in and of itself is great. Now, when repetition becomes a problem is when it repeats something that's unbiblical or not good doctrine or something that's theologically problematic. Well, then I don't want to even repeat it once. I don't want to say it at all. But if it's something that is true to God's Word, we should repeat it as much as possible so that it will refrain in our mind. Like the song that uh, Faith and I listened to on our drive-in uh, this morning where it said, Who am I? And it brought to my mind the passage of Scripture in 2 Samuel 7:18, and it, it just helped me think about the Lord. And that's what these songs do. So there's something significant, according to God's word in this particular psalm, the great Hallel, about the phrase, His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. This word, mercy, mercy, it, it's, it's a word that deals with God's incredible loving kindness. It's actually a, a very famous word in Hebrew. It's used extensively, 245 times, in fact. It's the word chesed, chesed. Maybe you've heard that Hebrew word. It means loving kindness, faithfulness, mercy. And 26 of the times that it occurs are right here in this one chapter of Psalms. So more than 10% of the total usages of this key word, loving kindness. God is a kind God, only does what is in our best interest. He never seeks to do us harm or ill. Evil never originates with God. He knows what's best for us. And like a, a good, good father, he gives us what we need. God's faithful kindness, his loyalty, his loyal kindness shows up in countless ways in our lives. We never have to worry about God being whimsical or flippant or unreliable, or acting out of character. You know, you think about the most loyal person in your life. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a dear friend. Even those people, at times, act out of character, don't we? You know, we get frustrated. We get 
discouraged, maybe we're not feeling well, we're not on our game, we fly off the handle. God never does that. God always acts according to his chesed, his loyal, loving kindness. Now, from our perspective, often we shake our fist at heaven and we say, why God? And this doesn't make sense. But it's precisely in those moments when we're facing difficulty that we need to be reminded of God's loving kindness and reminded that he's a faithful God and that whatever is going on, we can say with certainty God is not out to do us harm. He only wants to show us kindness every day. And he does it in a lot of little ways. And I just wonder, are we taking some of them for granted? Are we taking God for granted? So I want to review this psalm and and just kind of go through each stanza and and take a look at five little things that, that really we need to be reminded of. Maybe things that we don't think of very often. And that's what I really mean by little things. I mean, as again, all things are big things to God in terms of his goodness. And all of the big troubles to us, to God, are little. So we we, we sort of use little and big in in a weird way. But when I talk about being thankful for a few of the little things that are presented to us in this great Hallel Psalm, I'm, I'm talking about the things that maybe we don't think about as much as we should. Things, for example, like God's character. When's the last time you thought about God's loyal, faithful love, His character? So the psalm begins, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. The Hebrew word for good here is uh, used 484 times, very common, but it, it, it is often translated beautiful. So kind of insert beautiful in there and, 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 and see if that really adds a different uh, picture. It's the same word, by the way, that Isaac used when he referred to Rebekah as beautiful. So it describes God's overarching, prevailing character. Everything about God is good. It's beautiful. You know, we use this phrase in uh, uh, far less significant ways, good. You know, everything's good. And we also use beautiful that way. I, you know, back before the NFL went to pot, I used to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. And now I just have a hard time cheering along with my few thousand of my cardboard friends. So I, I just really have lost interest. I mean, that and the fact that the Cowboys are 2-7 and seven this year, so it's really, really no point. But back in the day when I would really be energized and excited and it's a good game, I would, when the Cowboys would do something good, maybe a big play or a touchdown, I would yell out what, Faith? Beautiful. In fact, it used to scare the, the little kids, and they'd go running when they were toddling around because they're not used to hearing me uh, scream like that. But this is a different sense. We're talking about God. In fact, notice that he uses the word Lord. And I want to talk about this for, for a moment. Uh, you know, the word Lord is all caps, and it should be in your English Bible too. If it's not, you probably don't have a formal equivalent English translation, but a good solid English translation that's sort of word for word, as we call it, you know, in a sense, is going to always use all caps for this particular Hebrew word, which is the word Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name for God. It, it, no one else has this name, and it's used 7,259 times in the Old Testament. This is the one true God when you see this word. So it's written in all caps, 
to distinguish it from another word, Lord, the word Adonai, which we're going to look at in a second, so you know which Lord we're talking about here. Now, if it's not in all caps, you don't know. Is this Yahweh or is this Adonai? Which Hebrew word is it? But this is the personal name for God. And the Jewish people, remember we said how there was an oral tradition. They didn't have writing instruments and paper and printing presses. So they passed down the teaching and the, of the prophets and the law through oral tradition. There were scrolls. Of course, it was written, but not everybody had access to that. So they would recite it and memorize it. And this word Yahweh was so significant to the Jewish people that they wouldn't even vocalize it. They wouldn't say it out of respect for him. So they would always say Adonai, the word Adonai, even if it was the word Yahweh, because they wouldn't vocalize the word Yahweh. Now, another thing to remember about the Hebrew language is the Hebrew language did not have vowels in it until centuries later when the Masoretic uh, scribes came along and put vowel pointers in there so that those of us who didn't learn Hebrew orally, being raised in the Jewish tradition, would know how to pronounce certain words. See, they would see the consonants. Of course, in Hebrew, they read right to left. And they would just know from, it was almost like a, a, a cryptic type language, like Chinese or an Asian language where it was just symbols. They would know from those words how to vocalize it. But we don't. So they would, they, later on, they put vowel pointers in. And so the word Yahweh is, is the way God referred to himself on occasions. For example, when Moses asked uh, of God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And remember what God said? God said, I am who I am, using Yahweh twice there. Right? See, it's to the Jews... This word basically means, I am who I am. I am the God who is. I am the only God. I just am. There never has been a time when I don't exist. There never will be a time when I don't exist or didn't exist. I am. I just am. Um, and and you, can't, you can't get away from God because not only is He eternal, and eternally exists outside of time, space, and matter. God created time, space, and matter. It's one of the reasons we have so much trouble reconciling sovereignty with free will because they were never meant to be reconciled, right? You know, so Calvinists do their best to put God in this box and they have these five steps and it all has to make sense. But Romans 11 tells us quite plainly we cannot understand the mind of God because we think in terms of time and linearly and space and matter. God exists in eternity. We don't even know what that looks like, right? I remember hearing an old uh, black preacher that I just loved uh, at a conference that I was speaking at, and he was speaking. And, and most, to be honest with you, most of the speakers I would skip and be just working on other things or hanging out at my not-by-works booth. But when he spoke, I was always in there because he just had a way of making the Word of God come alive. And, and he, he said something like, when you try to run ahead of God, you run, 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 and when you get there, there he is. God's already there. You can't run away from God. He's all wherever he is. So this is what the word Yahweh meant to uh, the Jewish people. Now, I want to take a moment here just for the sake of sort of instruction, if you will, to give you something to sort of 
uh, tuck away up here that is confusing to a lot of people. But we talk about the personal name God, Yahweh, and this general name, Lord, Adonai, which is could refer to any lord or master. And, but there's another word that comes up in English that people really are confused about, and that's the word Jehovah. Where does the word Jehovah fit into the equation? Well, I'm about to show you. And the reality is the English word Jehovah is never found in the Bible. It's a made-up word. But let me tell you where it came from. So if we take the word Yahweh, and in Hebrew it looks like this, again, writing from right to left. That's a yod, a hate, a vav, and another hate in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. And then we take the word Adonai, which, as I mentioned, was the general name for Lord. It just means like Lord or Master. And I've added the vowel pointers here in the word Adonai. And so what happened was when Yahweh, when they later on translated the Bible into English, which was, of course, you know, in the 1500s, um, they, by then the Hebrew language had vowel pointers with it. But when they added the vowel pointers for people that didn't speak Hebrew years and centuries and centuries ago, because, again, Yahweh is so revered, and you're not supposed to say the name Yahweh, to remind people of that, instead of putting the normal vowel vocalizations that would make it sound like Yahweh, they put the vowel pointers from Adonai with Yahweh. So let's walk through this. So if we were to transliterate each of these letters into English, the Yod becomes a J, the Hate is an H, the Vav is a V, and then another Hate. And these vowel pointers from Adonai are an A, an O, and another A. So remember, you, you, write, you read from right to left in Hebrew, so if we were to then take those English transliterations of the letters and turn them into an English word, we would start with the J, and then the H, and then the V, and then another H. Now again, because they didn't use Yahweh, uh, they used the vowel pointers from Adonai, they would take that A and put it up here first, then the O, and then another A. And what's the result? Jehovah. And over time, in our English Bibles, the A morphed into an E, and we have the English word Jehovah. So some English Bibles, when you see the word Yahweh, instead of doing an all caps L-O-R-D, will put Jehovah. But there really is no such word as Jehovah. It was just sort of a conflation, a combining of Yahweh consonants and vowels from Adonai, and you get this morphed word called Jehovah. So you just need to be aware when you see Jehovah, it's talking about Yahweh. It's talking about the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. And there is no Lord like our Lord. But what's really interesting is in this first stanza, which is verses 1, 2, and 3, the writer uses all three Hebrew words for God. He starts with Yahweh, but then he says in verse 2, Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. And this is the word Elohim. It's the formal name for God. So it, it, it doesn't always refer to God. Sometimes it just means God's plural. By the way, this formal name for God, Elohim, is plural. It's the word that's used in Genesis 1, implying the Trinity. And that's the reason the Bible says in Genesis 1.26, let God said, God said, let us, plural, make man in our image. Because it's Elohim, plural, because it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
that exists in eternity past. But after saying in verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord Yahweh, for He is good. Then he goes on to say, Oh, give thanks to the God, Elohim, of all gods. The God of all gods. It's kind of the, the formal name for God. And again, it repeats His mercy endures forever. We're going to see that in every one of these verses. But the formal name for God is more like, like let's say if you were thinking of a president, like Mr. President, right? His formal name that only he is known by that refers is John Fitzgerald Kennedy. But the Elohim would be Mr. President, right? The formal name or President Kennedy, right? Um, and so, and then he goes on in verse 3 to use the third word for God. So you've got Yahweh, Elohim, and then he says in verse 3, Oh, give thanks to the Lord of Lords. And notice, Lord, there is not capitalized. So that's not talking about Yahweh. That's the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the generic name for God. It's almost like Sir or Mister, right? So my formal name, Jerry Blaine Hickson. My my, uh, you know, that's sort of my the Yahweh, if you will, the personal name. The formal name might be Doctor or Pastor or Reverend or whatever the culture that I'm in at the moment calls for. Uh, but then the generic name uh, might be JB or just uh, sort of a real informal type uh, uh, generic name. So, oh, so he mentions all three, and I think that's because he's highlighting God's character. Are we taking God's character for granted? Do we understand him as the I am? Do we understand him as the creative God above all gods? Do we understand Him as our Lord and Master? Do we understand God's character? How often do we stop and, and think about that reality? That's something to be thankful for. And then in the next six verses, he talks about God's creation. I love uh, these uh, verses. He says, he starts it out uh, in, in verse 4 by saying, To Him alone, this is to Yahweh, Elohim and Adonai, the God of all gods, to him alone who does great wonders. And then in the next five verses, and we won't look at them all, but he's going to highlight some of these great wonders in verses five through nine. Now, of course, you know, we live in a beautiful place, and so we probably really do take some of God's creative wonders for granted. Um, but if you lived, say, in you know, the Texas or Oklahoma panhandle, and you've been there your whole life, never left, and all of a sudden you fell asleep, and someone took you in a car and drove you to the Rocky Mountains and some beautiful spot with a beautiful vantage point and woke you up and said, what do you think? You'd be just amazed, and you would just fall into spontaneous praise for our God and Creator. So it's very easy for people to take for granted some of these creative great wonders that the, the anonymous psalmist talks about here. Things like the heavens. When you look up at night. I remember one time driving across Montana at night. It was a clear night before they did all the you know, uh, uh, solar radio, you know, radio mediation and the chemical ice nucleation, all the other geoengineering that they're spraying all across the skies. And you could actually see... And I was just, it was breathtaking. I was looking out my window and it was just, it just caught my attention. I pulled off to the side of the road and just got out and looked. And it was just unbelievable, the heavens. 
And by the way, as we talked about in our Spirit of the Antichrist series, that geoengineering that's taking place right now once again cuts right to the heart of God's creative aspect. And that's the reason I think time is short. The earth, obviously, the mountains, the oceans, the seas, the rivers, the waterfalls, just the beautiful trees, the snow, snow-capped mountains, I mean, all of it is an incredible wonder of God. The lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars, all of these things. Are we taking God's creation for granted? As you think about all of the stresses of your little world, Take a step back and let's remember our God's character and his creation. He's a big God. But then he, he mentions in the biggest section of this great Hallel, Psalm 136, God's calling. This focuses on specific elements and events in the life of Israel. And it reminds us that God has a calling for Israel, his chosen nation. And it should therefore remind us that he has a calling for us as well, as individuals. In other words, God has a plan. Never forget that. So let's look at some of the verses that recount some of these historical events. For example, verse 22. He says, a heritage to Israel his servant. Heritage is a Hebrew word for inalienable hereditary property something that is unique to the recipient, and something that is eternal and never to be lost. In English, another word for heritage is legacy. Israel's legacy was that God called them with Father Abraham in Genesis 12, promised them a great nation, then He called them out of bondage again and again, and then He has promised them that someday when the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the son of David, comes back, He will regather them in their land supernaturally. Don't think for a second that the regathering today that happened on May 15, 1948, or that began anyway then, is the regathering of the end times. The regathering of the end times, according to Matthew 24, He's going to send His angels, Jesus is, to the four corners of the earth to supernaturally transplant them into Israel in belief. And in order for them to be part of that great gathering, all individual Jews must first believe the gospel. They're not in the land in belief today. But they have a heritage. And, and so, you know, we, we read about this, for example, in Jeremiah 29, during the Babylonian exile, one of the lowest points in Israel's history. He says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, you there is Judah and Israel both, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. To give you a future and a hope. Now, we can extrapolate from this principle of, uh, of God's calling and from other passages of Scripture that God has a calling for you and me too. This isn't talking about our hope, um, but we know that God does have a plan for us. Before He formed us in the womb, He knew us. <laughs> and uh, we know from Ephesians 1 that God, that we're chosen, that we're, we have a plan. So what is your heritage? What is your legacy? Have you thanked God lately for making you, you? I mean, think about it. There are, there are things that only you can do. I don't mean, you know, scientific things or technical. I just mean 
in the day-to-day -day course of life, in the intersection of people, there are things that only you can do. Have you thanked God for, for using you? There are things that only you have done. <laughs> you know, uh, just amazing things. I, I, you know, I always hate using myself as an example, but I've been really thinking about this all week, and it's like the Lord has brought examples to my mind. And, but I know that everyone in this room has dozens of stories just like this in similar ways. But I got a call on our 1-800 number for Not By Works Ministries, and it was a, a young man, 24, and um, he uh, had just gotten out of prison in San Obispo, California. And uh, he was going to his first job interview. He texted me after, I talked to him for a while, and he texted me after it. He got hired on the spot at Dollar General. And he said, I start tomorrow, and I can't wait. And uh, just pray that I can do well. But he, he was just got out, served a short sentence for meth, and, uh, and he's on the right track. But while he was in prison, another inmate, he told me his name, I'd never heard of him, but he said, another inmate led me to the Lord shared with me the gospel. And then he said, he gave me a copy of your book. Now, don't ask me how one of my books found its way into some prison in San Luis Obispo and a believer there doing the work of God behind bars, reaching people that nobody else was going to reach. So somewhere along the way, God used, and I don't even know which book it was, but he said, he gave me a copy of your book. And, he, and somewhere along the way, a book that I wrote for who knows how long ago, ends up in the hands of a, a prisoner who knows the Lord. I don't know whether he got saved in prison or not, but somehow this guy knew the Lord and was leading other prisoners to the Lord. Then he gives it to this guy because he was getting out. He said, Read this book. It'll help you grow in your faith. The guy looks up our website, calls my 1-800 number, and leaves me a message, and I call him back. Now, God is sovereign. He could have accomplished ministry in that young man's life in any number of ways that he wanted, but he chose to use me and not by works. And by the way, as an extension, Plum Creek Chapel, because we're all in this together. And those are the kinds of things that just really encourage me. Uh, are we taking God's calling for granted in our lives? And then the fourth stanza here, which is verses 23 to 25, focus on God's care. And God's provision. You know, we need provision for our humble condition. And God's people all over the earth need more provision even than we do. You know, we need provision. We hop in the car and go to King Scoopers, right? But you better hurry up and do because the shelves are fixing to be empty. Uh, but we can, generally speaking, go get one. But that's not true everywhere. A lot of believers don't have access to these things. And we need to remember that it's not King Scoopers or our, whoops, that's not my wallet. My, our wallet, uh, it's not our wallet, it's not our job, it's not our bank account that's providing for our daily needs. It's God. God is there. Notice what he says in verse 23. Who remembered our lowly estate. One Hebrew lexicon defines this as low place or humble situation. Now that's interesting. How many times over the years have you thanked God for your humble situation so that God could lift you up? Lord, I, I'm thankful that I don't quite have enough 
money to get to the end of the month for the next paycheck. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. You know why, God? Because that just means you're going to have to provide, and, and I trust you for it. How many times have we done that? Not enough. Not enough. Thank We remembered our lowly we remembered that you remembered us in our lowly estate, our humble condition. You rescued us from our enemies. Now, this one's a little easier to remember because at least in our life through the years, we've had many uh, issues where there was some enemy, and by that I don't mean someone holding a gun to our head, but just someone that was coming against the ministry, coming against the church, coming against the family, whatever it might be, because Satan hates anybody that's promoting the gospel and promoting grace. And we've seen God's hand of blessing there. Who gives food to all flesh, he says. How often do we thank God for his provision daily in our lives and his care? And then finally, we see in the last verse a reference to God's control. Sort of a summary statement that God is in the heavens and he's in full control. His vantage point is higher than ours, broader than ours, better than ours. The psalm, the great Hallel psalm concludes with, Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. The God of heaven. You know, this is amazing to me. Think about how majestic and lofty the psalms are. And yet, you know, you have 150 psalms. And yet, this is the only place in the entire book of psalms that God is referred to as the God of heaven. Only for time this phrase is used in all of psalms. Right here at the end of this great Hallel. I think the writer wanted to leave us with a majestic summary statement of a, of a, of a sort of a comprehensive reference to the all-encompassing, loyal, chesed love of God. It reminds me of one of the other Hallel Psalms, remember Psalm 115, where we read, Our God is in heaven, and not the God of heaven, but He's in heaven, and He does whatever He pleases. He's in full control. And how often do we thank God for that fact? You know, you've heard me say before, has it ever dawned on you that nothing ever dawns on God? You know, God is sovereign, all-knowing, and we forget that. We, we take it for granted that God is in control even of your difficult circumstances, even of my difficult circumstances. You know, God was in control when Landry's car broke down yesterday. I forgot that in the moment. <laughs> so... You know, and you know, when he pulled off on the left side of the road on Interstate 70 instead of the right side, it was at that moment that I wished I'd have been more detailed in my training of my son when he learned how to drive. How dangerous is that? And you know what? God was in control of even that because it was a teachable moment and God protected him. Right? How often do we take for granted that God's in control? How often do we thank the Lord for, for taking the wheel even when our eyes are off the road? I know that sounds like a Carrie Underwood song. I apologize. But the Bible says, Known to God from eternity are all his works. This is James, the Lord's brother, speaking at the Jerusalem Council. And are we taking God's control for granted? Are we taking God's control for granted? So just a few things from this psalm, just to remember. Big things, little things, depends on your perspective, but... We need to remember God's character and His creation and His calling in our individual lives and His care, especially, and His control. So this week, as you go through Thanksgiving in the midst of this a Thanksgiving probably like no other, I'm guessing, remember the little things and thank God for them. 
And, and ask this question, and ask the Lord to show you this. What am I taking for granted, Lord? Hopefully He won't take your washing machine away or your lawnmower or any, but, but hopefully He'll show you. He'll show you what we're taking for granted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. As always, what a privilege it is to gather together around your word. May it nourish our hearts and souls. Lord, if there's one here today that by your providence came to this place and does not know your Son and our Savior, we pray that by simple faith they would reach out and recognize their need for a Savior, recognize that only Jesus Christ can save from the penalty of sin because only Jesus Christ took our sins upon him, died and rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And only Jesus can offer freely to all the gift of eternal life if we'll simply place our faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. So Lord, if there's one here today that has not done that, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would not leave here before expressing their faith in their own heart for Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.